0: Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric Hawthorne. And this is Jan Banks. And we are going to have a wonderful episode on Urban Alchemy Podcast today. So last time,
1: we had a discussion on the wire season one. It seemed to be really popular. What do you think, John? Oh, absolutely. Folks really have taken to our media reviews, And that's why I like that we have split everything up. Some people don't like when we go too deep into you know, the social issues. Some people don't like when we do the media. So it's like, let's just split everything up, give people what they want. Yeah, this has been really so, so, my plan is Eric Hawthorne is going to be taking over our Monday morning video news and just I mean, master the master plan to do all video the podcast. But it's going to be pretty much, uh, the helm this year. So, uh, take it away, Eric. Alright, so, this season a look so successful. Alright, we love that. We thought we could go this it season. It's not different we want to switch it up every, you know, every Every three episodes, we're going to pick a new season of a new TV show. But we've just had such a blast doing yeah. Wire Season One. And this is a show that you and I can really like think of like right
0: off the back of our heads. Absolutely. Um, so we thought we'd delve into Season Two a little bit
1: and just kind of continue on with the series. Hell yeah. All so right. Let's get into it. So the Wire Season, let's just recap Season One. So it pretty much ended. On a note that you were just like, yeah, the, the the good guys kind of came out on top, but the repercussions are felt off very early in the second season. Everybody has pretty much been demoted. They, they pretty much went from detectives to beat cops. McNulty's on a boat, which I'm told is the worst place you can be right on in the police uh, department just fishing stuff out of out of the the ocean it's just was like damn this is a hell of a motion it'll be like if like you guys aren't podcasters anymore now you guys are just going to stand on the corner with a megaphone and yell at people like the guy on the plaza (laughs) exactly that's exactly what i thought about For all those folks who are not from Kansas City, there are religious zealots who stand on J.C. Nichols Plaza and just yell crazy things about how the world's going to hell. And there's one particular white man who's very, very persistent. Uh, He has to have a day job. I see him out there on all hours of the day. What does he do for a living? Tells people to repent. I wonder wonder what his success
0: rate is. Really? Does anybody actually stop, uh, you know... And take time out of their high-end shopping and say, you know what? This isn't right.
1: This thing, you should, this should be some content we create. Like, we just act like we're some shoppers and then we just stop and look at him. Like, he's right. We've got to stop. We've got to stop. Come on, folks. Listen to this guy. Repent. (laughs) Repent. And then we set up a booth right next to
0: him. Make haste. (laughs) No, no, no. But anyway, let's get back on topic. All right. So, Wire season two is
1: a make or break season, don't you think? Absolutely. For many people. For many people. I've been told by a lot of people they didn't get into The Wire because they didn't like season two. So it kind of just like they stopped watching it right? instead of just like, you know, kind of gritting your teeth and getting through it. You know, as we've spoken about The Wire season two is super indecisive, super divisive between the fan base. Uh, I told you just not too long ago, I was one of those people who really didn't like it. It was just like I fast forwarded through the parts with white, you know, the the dock workers. And right. it just wasn't interesting until we got to the the Greeks who start doing business with the black people and prop Joe. And it's just like, now I got to rewind and go back and figure out who the hell these people are and what the dynamics are between them.
0: Right. And I, I will say this. OK,
1: I didn't watch season one
0: first and i said this last time i watched season two first but i kind of meandered through season two but then i rewatched it again immediately after and i was like okay this is cool but still a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense why is avon in jail why is stringer running things so i know i needed to watch the first season and from the first season the characters that were in the foreground now become in the background Mm -hmm. and that i think is what throws people off because you bring in an entirely new cast of characters that really don't even go on beside a couple of cameos Mm -hmm. in the later seasons but nobody is a significant character that
1: continues yeah that's a very apt observation because i really didn't think about that till you said that to me uh in conversation yeah the, a lot of the characters the new characters who are at the forefront don't pop up again after this season like the uh beady or uh you know any any of the white people pretty much Nick. any of
0: the dock workers yeah. horse uh nick nick is what i was surprised about okay it was gonna be like a breakout character yeah i thought so too and uh nick is a He's actually a really good actor. He plays porn Stash in uh, Orange is the New Black. I can't remember the gentleman's name.
1: Actually, uh, yeah, I can't either. But he also played a, a really good recurring role on Law and Order SVU. He played uh, Olivia Benson's like arch nemesis. He was like this rapist who was super smart and they couldn't catch him. But they knew he was the rapist and he kept doing crimes and they just (laughs) they couldn't catch him. And it was just a brilliant role. Probably my favorite role. He's done. Yeah, he played a great Nick. Uh, So just to give a little recap, uh, this season's pretty much, as we said, last episode or our last episode on The Wire. This uh, it's pretty much broken up season by season into different uh, institutions, institutions. Metropolitan Institutions. This one focused on the dock workers and pretty much how crime and different contraband gets brought into the country. And it kind of also is a Venn diagram of the working class middle middle America and what they will do to remain on top as well as, you know, kind of keep that American dream alive.
0: Yeah, um, I think this season season two is very pertinent to what is going on today. Mm. Um, You have the working class, the union workers trying to preserve their union, trying to preserve their everyday life. And it's slowly slipping away due to technology. Now there are a lot of different layers to that. And, you know, we can also discuss some of the things that happened um, recently with some of the Trump rallies and stuff like that. I kind of think of this season as What was the John Travolta movie "White Man's Burden"? Yeah, yeah. I would say this movie—I mean, this particular season—could be called the White Man's Burden. There's a lot of different things going on in here that they focus solely on what I would say middle-aged white men would would really. This season focuses on uh, what middle-aged white men really worry about: the preservation of their union, their families. Uh, some of their social groups and whatnot, and
1: a traditional way of life. I'm, nepotism. Nepotism. How am I going to get my my family members into these positions so they can have successful families as well? Exactly. Even though some of them might not be qualified. Right. 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 So, for instance, uh, there
0: it's either in I think the first episode where uh, we're introduced to Ziggy, and Ziggy is basically a clown. He's uh, a fuck up. I'll say it. Okay, well you said it. Okay, so he's a clown and one of the dock workers is like one of the new dock workers is like, What are you doing? He's like, Oh my god, you're you're an idiot, basically. And then Frank Sabaka comes out and is like, Ziggy, you're fired. And then uh the guy's like, Oh wow, fired fired just like that. And he's like, Oh, he's not f-. and then another guy comes in and says, Oh, he's not fired. That's uh his son. So Frank Sabaka is Ziggy's basically absent father. Yeah. I would say. But Ziggy is employed on the docks, despite the fact that he he has no value whatsoever. there. Yeah. kind of like a, and I hate to say this, but a lot of people are always wondering uh, what Eric Trump does. Yeah, <laughs> he, no, he does nothing, basically. And Don mm-hmm. Jr. is basically the guy who's always running on the campaign trail and nobody listens to Eric Trump. That is basically where we are here. John Jr. is Nicholas Sabaka, the cousin, and uh, Ziggy, I would say, is Eric Trump. Yeah. To say it, you know, kind of in a modern context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in, in in regards to Ziggy, the thing that always interested me is that he had every allowance allotted to him within the American dream, like he had a hardworking father who you know was absentee but it wasn't because he left his family it's because no. he, he was the, the polar opposite he was doing this for his family we need to talk about that absentee mother mm. that never, showed that up, never shows us. that
0: he constantly refers Frank to as his killed that
1: woman and put her in a container but yeah it's just so funny to look back how this kid and he wanted to be in the criminal world and just right. like you don't have to do any of the you just have a you just work In this job that your father gave you. And yeah, it's a very, yeah, you hit the nail on the head about white man's burden. I would say it's part white man's burden, part the Irishman. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't know, uh, the thing that really threw me off about this, I didn't know the importance of unions. Uh, At the age I first initially watched this, it wasn't until I got much older that I understood like the political powers that unions have, and you know just the importance of unionizing for workers, and the fact that this season was just pretty much about the decline of that whole society and how it's just like the power that once was there isn't there anymore, and they're not going to protect you for any you know bullshit thing you do. So you know at the beginning of the season, the I guess the catalyst for everything is a container a uh, shipping container full of Eastern European women but I believe 18 women 18 dead women uh no 14 <clears throat> was it 14 14 murders okay oh it just says over a dozen in the descri- episode description but okay was, yeah, somewhere, somewhere along those uh yeah a lot of dead women a lot of dead Eastern European prostitutes mm-hmm. uh but yeah pretty much it 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 Puts a magnifying glass on the docks. And it's uh, also a vendetta between, once again, nepotism. Because we, in the first episode of our Wired discussion, we, we talked about the police captain who pretty much put his son-in-law. Stan Valchek. Yeah, Val-check, who put his inept, imbecile son-in-law in this task force, this elite task force to bust drug dealers. And, you know, he's just uh, a constant hindrance. Same thing with Ziggy on the docks like he's constantly doing stupid things constantly doing pranks and jokes and until people had enough of him he's just like you know what i don't care you're the boss's kid we're gonna start messing with you until you just leave and yeah it, it's it, really looking back at it I, at this point I, I look i enjoy more of the dock stuff as opposed to the street shit i <clears throat> i
0: like the doc stuff I mean, it's not bad. It's just hard to identify with Ziggy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, and i put it like this. Ziggy is made towards the end of that particular season to be this tragic figure. And you don't feel sorry for no. him at all. Not one bit. And you're just like, and there's this sad poignant scene between he and Frank. And I just didn't care to be quite honest. I cared more about Nick and what was going on with him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it was an interesting thing you know he's he's a young man probably about 22 23 years old something like that he has a girlfriend uh 3 year old daughter i think or something like that and he wants to be better he wants to get a car he wants to get a, a his family a nice house and stuff like that cuz he lives with his parents and you know he sees the hustle and bustle of the drug drug gang later on from the uh, greeks and he's just like, OK, well, I can make this money fast. And he is more competent than Ziggy. Ziggy is somebody who initially tries to get into the drug game and stealing stuff. But he is highly incompetent and he does off the wall things that set. um, Like st- stolen basically petty crimes. Penny Crimes, you know, they're they're trying to steal some goods from the shipping containers or whatnot, give them to the Greeks or whatnot, the Greeks associates. And they usually go well when Nick is involved. But when Ziggy tries to orchestrate the things, they always go
1: haywire. Very blatant. That's that's the thing that really pissed me off about Ziggy. They were very blatant thefts. Like it was no finesse to it. It wasn't just like they fell off the back of a truck. It was just like, why are five 100 cameras missing from this order like it, it really pissed me off like they it was a really wink wink like this thing these things happen like people still at the docks like right. but you got to do it smart like you can't just take 500 units and then expect no one to you'd be like okay this just disappeared right and then uh, on top of that i remember his incompetence
0: was on full display when he stole the cameras for double g and then He was explaining everything to Double G. uh, We got the cameras, et cetera, et cetera. But then he took one of the cameras and tried to take a picture of Double G. And Double G was like, what are you doing? And he threw the camera down and broke it. Um, So, yeah, Ziggy is somebody who is not a likable character. Not whatsoever. And if we shift to some of our likable characters, I think that we will just mainly be talking about the people in the streets. You know, that like I said, take the backseat in this series.
1: Yeah. In this season, you because Avon's in prison, uh, right. Stringer pretty much is running the organization on the outside. And that, and me and Eric talk about this, it's probably one of our most favorite things is when Stringer tries to introduce order into the organization and, you know, to use things like Robert's rules, of, Robert's rules of Order as well as, you know, just try to use his education and business to put that on the streets. And these niggas is not picking. It up at all like they are not soaking up the knowledge to be like I mean at one point they do kind of we were adhering to the rules like they were actually you know had a chairperson a uh, uh, you know uh, excuse me um, sergeant at arms mm-hmm. you know and and they were actually doing it but it, it's it's it always was the most interesting thing for me initially to watch like someone try to run a, a drug organization because you don't ever see that in in you didn't ever see that in media, and right. you know, except for New Jack City, Nino Brown, whatever he had going. Mm-hmm. But you don't ever see organized criminal organizations like that. Uh But yeah, Stringer, I loved watching him work this season as the head of the family.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because this is the beginning of the end for String because he gets further and further away from the streets and he tries to be somebody that he clearly is not. Or somebody that he could have been in a different set of circumstances. I'll I'll say that uh, when we see string, he is actually taking courses at a local community college, learning about macroeconomics and learning about competition, prices, learning about competition, supply and demand and other uh, market forces that would help increase his productivity in drug uh, business. Um, At this time, you know, the products that they are putting out on the street are so diluted that people are starting to go over to, uh, what is it, the East Side? Prop Joe's people. Yeah, And so, you know, Prop Joe's people, interestingly enough. introduction for Prop
1: Joe, for those of you who are just listening and haven't seen it. One of my favorite characters of the show.
0: Prop Joe is, he, he's just like your uncle. OK, In yeah. fact, matter of fact, he is somebody. I was about to say very,
1: very nail on the head right there.
0: Right. Because he's a cheese or method man's character's uncle. And he's an uncle who actually owns like a pawn shop of some sorts a so or a repair, repair, shop. repair shop. We don't exactly know. Probably a repair shop. Yeah. And he just looks like an everyday person. You know, every day, dude. This would be your uncle playing uh, chess. Yeah, very unassuming. <laughs> he uh, he had a very small role in the first season, but in this season, his uh role is actually beefed up because they have the product, they just don't have the territory. Stringer and Avon have the territory, but they don't have the product. So String sees. An opportunity. Well, actually, Prop Joe sees an opportunity to parlay and try to bring the two sides together and try to uh, make sure that their product is actually sold by you know splitting some of the territory. Now, String is cool with this, but he knows that it's not going to go over with Avon because Avon is a soldier. Avon's like, I want my corners, I want my towers, East Side niggas. (laughs) He hates them. He hates them a lot, and that and that sort of hatred. Really prevents him from seeing how you know they can stay afloat. The bigger picture. The bigger picture, in which I commend String for. The problem is that String does a whole bunch of backhanded stuff that really begins to spiral out of control. It's yeah. like a small set of events that lead to a bigger domino effect. Yeah,
1: that's what I was thinking. Yeah, it was just like little small things. It's just like you didn't tie those loose ends.
0: Yeah, and it's it's really unfortunate because this actually leads to a pretty promising character, uh, not very well-liked, but somebody who could have been somebody. Oh, absolutely. Uh, D'Angelo Barksdale. This is Avon's um, nephew. nephew. And he actually... He actually gets killed (laughs) in this season. Mm -hmm. Um, The murder is actually arranged by Stringer Bell, and he actually enlists some people from... DC, I think to kill him. Yeah, yeah, you can't because he can it can't him. be anybody in the, ci- in the city. Because can't be tied back to him, right? Can't be tied back to him because it's it, his boss's
1: nephew,
0: right? And it's supposed to be his boy's nephew. Now that's like you coming going out to somebody in, I don't know, Omaha, Nebraska, finding somebody to kill one of my nephews or yeah. something like that. You know, that's that's just how insane this is. You know, they've been business partners, boys, for a long time, and then all of a sudden he's like, you know. D'Angelo could be a risk to their organization because he's he's tied down with 20 years for um, his role in the last season for the drug bust in the last season. And so D'Angelo is 23 years old. So by the time he would have got out of jail, it would have been 43. So he's looking at them years. He's got a child and a girlfriend. And then string is looking at it like, well, you know, I don't think he can do the time. I think I don't think he's a soldier like Wee Bay. Now Wee Bay is life. He's in there for life because he took a lot of additional charges that he didn't actually need to, but he copped to a lot of murders.
1: He's got that sandwich out of it.
0: Yeah, he did get that sandwich. And I'm I'm going to get on Officer Tillman for messing with my boy Wee Bay's fish in in uh, season two. Oh, they get him. Yeah, but uh, so D'Angelo basically has. A, this huge weight on his shoulder. You know, Avon is like, OK, you know, are you good? You know, because I think Avon only has seven years at this point, even though he's the head of the crime syndicate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's telling D'Angelo, trying to check in with him. Brianna, uh, D'Angelo's mother is always like, are you taking care of him? Promises were made, Avon. What, is he getting this? Is he getting that? Because Avon, although he is in jail, you'll see him with big gulps. Stuff from Seven Eleven. He has an Xbox in his uh, jail cell. He has a um, uh, TV monitor. He gets whatever he wants because he is that guy.
1: Yeah, but it still doesn't insulate him from, like, said Officer Tillman. Like, he to well, yeah. Insulate. And it's important to know, like, as Stringer was partially right initially in regards to D'Angelo because D'Angelo did turn to drugs pretty quickly. In his incarceration, like he got there, he's like, "This is going to be horrible." He starts getting hooked on heroin, or yeah, yeah, it starts uh, coming a drug addict, and you know, I don't know if you we're going to go into that a little bit deeper. Go, no, no, no i was go just going to say because that just shows you that Avon's not a dumb guy either. Like Avon's a evil criminal mastermind. Like he used that uh, situation with uh, that officer who's, who's causing son. him trouble, and he used that to his advantage to set that guy up. To, uh, also, he, he's a savage because he killed, like, I don't even know how many people with tainted product. I think five or seven. I can't remember. Enough for him to get some years shaved off of his sentence and get out early. But it was just a, it was just like a Game of Thrones type move. It was just like, yo, this is the Red Wedding. Right. Right here where he was just and it. And, and it also, it was such a jarring feeling initially. I remember watching that because I remember that moment with him and D'Angelo. He's like, yo, you ain't good. You want this shit? Let me see. You can get your head together. Like, stop using for a week and show me you can do that. And he's like, I can do that. Next couple of days, it's an overdose. And these are people like he was friends with, you know, the comic book guy, the guy yeah. liked comic books and stuff. It was just like. He was just, he wasn't worried about your well-being. He was just like, don't get killed with the, what I'm about to do. Right, right, right. And also, it, it lets you know at what level he held him, because he didn't tell him, like, hey, I got this shit coming in it's going to kill some people. He just was like, don't do not do drugs. Like, he could have just as easily been like, hey, this is the plan. But he was too afraid. Like, he, he was going to, you know, let the cat out of the bag and be a risk to him getting out early.
0: Right, but then, you know, D'Angelo figures it out quick and in a hurry. It's like, oh, you After had something the dead to do with Right. He's like, okay, you had something to do with that. Because I guess what happened was, uh, Officer Tillman was getting the drugs from blind Butch. Right. He was getting them from Butchie. And then, you know, Stringer's, Stringer's crew saw that or whatever. And then Stringer was basically like the Butch. He's like, yo, we're coming from Avon. You know, this is what we need to do. And then Butchie was like, Avon said that? He said, Avon said that. Okay, so basically the drugs got spiked. Mm -hmm. And we know that ultimately when Officer Tillman brings that contraband into the jail to sell it to the inmates, you know, they have this reaction, they die. And, you know, it's a it's a
1: media circus. Right. We need to figure out how the drugs are getting into the into the uh into the prison. And Avon snitches as much of a soldier as he is and a street nigga like if I was stringer I would have been like okay so about your street code that you live by that you don't want to turn away for in the you know in the for business what the fuck are you doing but that's the double standards right so Avon talks to the prison warden and some of the officers of course with his uh,
0: lawyer present and- snitches <laughs>
1: let's call it what it is that nigga snitch Avon 69. And so, oh, wow.
0: And so basically he tells them, you know, he
1: knew he knew how
0: the drugs got in. And so basically uh, they go out, they search Officer Tillman's car, find drugs on there. And Tillman's like, what? You put that in there? I didn't even have that in there, even though Tillman is bringing the drugs into the prison. He's not necessarily bringing... He did. He was not responsible for that bag that was in his car. His car was broken into right. to have that incriminating evidence.
1: Important thing. Remember, folks, two things can uh, be true at the same time. You can be innocent, but you can also be guilty, <laughs> like Michael Jackson and Finding Netherland. Wow. No, I'm just saying, I don't believe those those guys in the documentary. But I also leave the door open that it's possible he could have been a bad file with his mm-hmm. behaviors. Like two things could be possible at the same time.
0: Right. And so basically from there, Avon is trying to get D'Angelo to, you know, come, come in on this deal with him. Like, okay, you know, I'm going to get some years shaved off my sentence. You can get some shaved off yours. But D'Angelo, he doesn't fall for it. He's like, you no, know, he wants to make his own way. You know, uh, Donette, his uh son's mother, girlfriend, comes in, brings um, you know, their son in, you know, to visit him, and you know, and telling the telling uh D'Angelo that, you know, Stringer and everybody else is gonna make a way for him. Little does D'Angelo know that Stringer is now sleeping with Donette. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I think that D'Angelo looks at his son and he's like, you know what? I wanna be a good example for him. You know, I know he sees me behind bars, but I want to be a better man. So, you know, that's when he starts flushing his heroin down the uh, drain and whatnot. And, you know, he's like, I'm going to do these years. And he tells that to his mother, Brianna. He's like, you know, I've got this. I'm going to take this. He's like, you remember that time when you when those boys were picking on me as a kid and you told me to go and stand up for myself and fight back? This is what I'm doing. I'm going to carry this. And so he does carry it for about another like. 10 minutes until he's killed by uh, the guy from D.C.'s cousin inside the jail. Make it look like a suicide. So it does go along with the narrative that, oh, D'Angelo is too weak.
1: He couldn't carry the years. It was too much of a burden for him. But in reality, he was strong enough to carry it. And was that next season that Avon does the reveal to, I mean, Stringer does the reveal to Avon? That's That's one of my favorite scenes right there because Avon just thinks stringer's a bitch made nigga, and it's just like, I got something for you. (laughs) What what, what, what would possess somebody to
0: say that? Like your nephews, you love your nephews, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay, so if I come to you and I'm like, yeah, I killed your, I had your
1: nephew killed. It was me. Like, would you respond like, oh, okay, I understand why you did you gotta that. Look at the character analysis. Stringer been getting called soft and you ain't built for this for th- almost three seasons at that point. Right. Like he has been getting told like you, you don't understand. You ain't, you ain't got it in you. And it's just like, okay, I ain't got it. It's like, if you got a. Argument with your girlfriend, and it's just like she says something like, Don't no girls want you. And he's like, Oh, no girls want me. <laughs> really? Oh yeah. <laughs> no girls want look at, me.
0: Look at my phone. <laughs> look at my text
1: messages. Your friend hit me
0: up back in the day just to <laughs> let me
1: know it was available. But you end up saying some shit in the heat of the moment. He's like, fuck, I should not. Have said. And that's probably the the start of the, the end of them, which is just like now the now the bond ain't so strong. Now just you know this nigga's capable of some of some crazy shit like that. Right, right. So that's really what's what's
0: interesting in this um this ep- this season. The problem is it's very short. Uh, you know, it's uh sparsed out throughout each episode. You might get a couple of scenes of here or there of Avon, Stringer, and the crew, uh, with Bodie and Poop. Um but they really take a back seat and then they focus on the sabakas and what's going on on the docks. Now, how this all really started was, you know, we talked about the 14 dead girls found in the can, the canister um that was on the docks. It really started before that when Stan Valchek wanted a picture of the uh Polish police in the nave of a of a Catholic church. Yeah. But the stevedores, the union workers, um, they had purchased that space already. And so Valchek goes to Frank Sabacca after hearing that they purchased, uh, that space to put the, uh, window of the stevedores in the cathedral. He goes to him and says, you know, um, why don't you put yours in the, on, on the second floor nursery and, you know, They've known each other for years. He's like, no, I'm not doing that. We purchased that space. We're going to use that space. And it's basically um, a dick measure. Uh, ba- yes, basically, That, for lack of better words. Yeah, absolutely. I will say the things
1: Eric in his fragile, you know, disposition will
0: prevent him from saying. OK, but, okay but basically that's what it, what it has become, because um, he asks the father of the church He's like, so how much was it that they? paid to put it in and then he's like well will you tell me if it was above like i don't know two thousand dollars he's like it was above two thousand no four thousand something like that he's like where are they getting that kind of money because Valcheck knows that the work is not coming down to the docks like it used to there's not enough uh work to so, to be um given out to to the laborers and so he's like hmm this is interesting and so that's basically how this whole investigation begins and then you get the 14 dead girls in the can which is really interesting because it goes to um that's when we are introduced to one of the great antagonists i wouldn't even call him a villain but the
1: greek yeah yeah so you want to take it over from here uh well the Greek I mean in regards to the I mean let's go back to law enforcement okay like I like I said at the beginning everybody's had a demotion McNulty is not even working murder cases he's just on a boat still being a thorn and in, in the leadership side because now you have the dead body and that was I love the 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 parts where they're trying to figure out who has to claim responsibility for the dead bodies and McNulty draws up a map with like current movements and was just like nope this dead body was actually floated over here so it was in your jurisdiction and it's just it just shows you like his his tenacity as a cop and his ability to just uh, his need for the job like it's a drug at this point to where he's not even getting paid for that work it's just... oh the <sighs> He's not even paid for that job. He's just doing it out of sheer, you know, I have a little extra time. Let's go solve a murder or two. But then again, his his life is also, well, but then again, his life is also
0: falling apart. Yeah, He is separated from his wife. His wife is dating a new man who's like a big wig, maybe lawyer or something like that. He doesn't really get to see his kids as much. He's in a little one bedroom apartment. So, you know, his life is falling apart. And with being out on the marina is, is making it even
1: worse. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, any scene you do see with him and his kids, it's, it's interrupted with a phone call for <laughs> right. emergency. scene. sometimes he brings the kids. <laughs> yes. Particularly
0: <laughs> in season three.
1: Yeah. Uh, oh, season one, too, when, uh, Omar is, uh, Lover got killed. He brought boys and the whole Oh, yes, and, like, I remember that. Yeah, and it's just like, come on, man, why don't you bring your kids to this? But yeah, it, it, it also shows, like, just the wreck his home life is in. And yeah, it, it like, it, I love the way they show like everybody, except for Carver and, and her. we don't ever see their lives, except for the movie scene. Right? Which was a great, great scene. scene. Great, great scene. Great scene. It's like seeing co-workers outside of work in that awkward moment where it's just like, I guess I'll see you guys on Monday, right, but right. with drug dealers and cops. Great scene in season three. Yeah, the mutual respect was just—it was amazing. But yeah, it it just seems like they—they show you the other side and the effect it takes on spouses, uh, law enforcement who hate the job. I think every spouse is pretty much like, "Yo, leave this job and do something else." Because it's a thankless job, it's a cutthroat job, it's hard on hours and you gotta bring that shit home with you. And yeah, just having a brother in law enforcement, I see the emotional strain of trying to, you know, be off of the job and not being able to like to shut the fuck down and talking about cop shit and it's just like, yo, can you shut the fuck up like and have a normal conversation? But it 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 really just uh, does a really good job of of humanizing law enforcement, I'd say.
0: Yeah, it does. Uh, You see, at this point, um, Lieutenant Daniel's life is kind of, home life is falling apart. Because he's shooting for the stars. Yes, he really is. Um, Initially, he was listening to his uh, wife to get his law degree. Mm. And then... uh, Sam Kima. Yep. And then who, I think Rawls makes him a proposition, or is it Burrell? It was... Somebody made somebody, one of the higher ups makes them a proposition like, you know, uh, yeah, you need to do this. And then, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, you can become major, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, just, you know, moving on up. And then, you know, Daniels thinks about it. He's like, well, I want to get out the basement. I don't really want to be a lawyer. You know, this is where my passion is. So, you know, I'm going to bite the bullet and, you know, I'm going to. Work this detail for Stan Valchek that Burrell wants me to work for him you know, because he wants Valchek. Burrell wants Valchek off of his back. And so he does it. And then Burrell says, you know, I'll owe you a favor. You know, eventually later on in the season, you know, Daniels takes on the 14 murders as well from uh, the downtown police. And, you know, I, I guess that was a a thing of conscience because I think Lester had a conversation with him like, can you go to sleep at night, basically knowing that there are 14 unsolved murders that you have the ability to solve? And then, uh, who? Kima. Kima. Kima's life is really falling apart. Like, her girlfriend is having a baby through, of course, artificial insemination. And then, She's not really connected because she's not carrying the baby. The baby, of course, is not her egg. And so and she's not at home and she's not at home. So it makes it very
1: difficult for her home life as well. Another great line I love is when Daniels is trying to recruit her on the task force. And Kima's is also studying for her law degree because her wife wants her to quit the force because it's dangerous. She got shot. Uh, she got shot yet. She got shot in the first season. First season, yeah. So she's like, Get almost the- died. Yeah, she's like, it's too dangerous. Get the hell out there. Get your law degree. And Daniels and her has that scene where he's just like, I love it. He's just like, I'll tell your wife. Or no, she tells him, like, I'll tell your wife. You tell mine. Right. <laughs> and it just encapsulated that whole, just like, everybody's spouse is against this job. But they feel like it's such an important thing to do that they put that, you know, their families on on the wayside, and then you juxtapose that with the docs, where it's just like they're also doing the same thing, spending all their time less dangerous, but still a matter of, of time and investment and travel away from your family for the you know greater good eventually. But, right, right. Yeah.
0: So then after that, I think we kind of get need to get into the Greeks. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I, yeah I, you can go into you're you're more okay. Uh, I'm a so, scatterbrained. Yeah, that's why I was okay. like, okay, Eric needs to narrate. The, okay, so at this point
0: uh we go back to the docks and we talk about Frank's struggling union. So basically how he's been able to make the bill, get the bills paid and et cetera, et cetera, pay some of his workers for um, if they're late on their bills, if they need extra gas money or need a drink. He has drug money and yeah. he has a, a, other money that he has from retainer for smuggling things in for the Greeks. The Greeks are comprised of the Greek, who is the head of the organization. Then you have Spiros, you have Aton, as well as a lieutenant, and then you have uh, what is his name, uh, Sergei, yeah. who is actually Russian, but he's like the muscle. He's like the Wee Bay of the Greeks. Yeah. He, he he fixes stuff, and so. They are in deep with the Greeks and they smuggle things in these containers. And just so happened, one thing that they were smuggling into the container were 14 women. One of the women tried to escape. And well, one of the women were pulled out because uh, one of the guys who were smuggling them in wanted to have sex with them. And the shepherd who was supposed to make sure that they had safe passage did not do his job. So after the death of these 14 girls, because what happens is one of the girls gets killed. The rest of the girls are put back into the can and a can, one of these big shipping containers is stacked on top of that can, uh, and it essentially suffocates them because it closes the windpipe. But what they find out is that the, Air hole, the windpipe was actually um, hammered. hammered down by the shepherd mm-hmm. because he wanted to just make it look like all the girls died. So once the Greek gets a hold of this information, because Frank Sabaka is, of course, upset and angry because the cops are looking around, the cops are looking around you know, potentially harming the union and, you know, uh, putting Frank on the line, they go down there and um, they take. I think this is in Philadelphia. Actually, he goes to they go to Philadelphia. Yeah, they go to Philadelphia, the Greeks, and they take care of this guy, and they basically slice his throat, um, and then they remove his face. They cut off any kind of uh, limbs, uh, well, appendages, well, digits, hands, and stuff like that, so they can't identify the the guy or whatnot. And then basically, the Greek. And his men go back to Frank and said, "Okay, you know, let's go back to business as usual. Let's uh, go ahead and, you know, continue to work together. And he's like, I've taken care of it, et cetera, et cetera. But once again, Frank doesn't actually know who the Greek is. He just speaks to Spiros. Um, He sees Sergei, et cetera, et cetera. So from that point, we see that Ziggy and Nick are really attracted to this line. And they start getting in with the Greeks. And then Frank doesn't like this. But Spiros has a natural affection for Nick. He sees a lot of himself in Nick and he tries to mentor him and tell him how he can get into uh, the stolen contraband game, the um, drug game as well. So uh, from that point, you know, things slowly, slowly start, start to spiral out of control because Nick is just like, okay, well, I want Ziggy to kind of be with me because he's my family, but he's so incompetent. I can't have him actually help me execute some of these things because, you know, he'll he'll just mess things up, which he does, because uh, once they start stealing stuff, Ziggy starts buying like all these outlandish things, like a really nice leather and fur coat. He buys a Camaro and then the Camaro gets stolen by cheese, which is prop Joe's son and lit on fire. Oh, yeah. Nephew. Excuse me. So he's Prop Joe's nephew and he gets lit on fire. And so. It's just a confluence of events that just makes things worse and worse for these guys. But it just really starts to attract the attention of the Baltimore police. They get wiretaps and they're back
1: at it again. Yeah, absolutely. So what was your favorite uh, scene from season two? Season two
0: is when. Uh, Frank is talking to some liaison that he has between him and the port. And there the port is uh, something that's going to be built. Uh, they're going to dredge. They want to dredge it or whatnot and basically get rid of all the manpower. It's going to be just technology taken over and over. And I don't know the uh, correct line, but he says something along the lines is, you know, we used to, build things, but now we just have our hands in another man's pocket. And I thought that was the most powerful scene in season two. And it was a very good scene. Um, I can't really think of anything else that really jumps out. What about you?
1: Uh, mine, I believe would be the introduction of brother Muzon Uh Just okay. such a completely different character And just being well-versed with Malcolm X and the Fruit of Islam, I knew what a real deal. he. I've never seen a character in media. It was just like, who was a member of the Fruit of Islam? And they were pretty much specifically, you know, showing like these guys were paramilitary branches of the Nation of Islam, like these guys were trained. And when you put that into context that these guys have been around since the 1960s, or maybe even slightly before the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, and they've been training since then. Like, these guys are the real deal. And then you put that into the drug game. It was just so, a character that was so new and different. And every every line he had was just so nuanced and amazing. And it was just like, yo, I need to see more of him. Like, please make a spinoff of just him and his assistant with his books. <laughs> and I, I, think, I think, actually, I think that might be my favorite scene is his introduction with cheese. And... Of course, uh, some niggas on the corner see this guy roll up in a suit and bow tie. They're going to laugh at him. And this dude pulls out this Ruger and pops him with a a bullet that was just like, I believe it was just like a, a meter gel or something that was a non-lethal round pretty much. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And then he told him that the next round was this super technologically specific bullet of his own construction. Oh, yeah. And I was just like, he makes his own bullets. <laughs> Yeah, it was just like so crazy. And just to see the looks on their faces as he pulls out this gun and just shoots cheese right in broad daylight in front of everybody to clear out this corner, because that's what he was hired to do by, by Avon is to pretty much when when Avon felt like Stringer wasn't getting the shit done. He reached out to New York and they brought in Brother on to clear out these corners, please. These east side niggas not knowing that Stringer set the shit up so they can work on these corners. And yeah, it was just the, the fact he came in and he just had that style and calm. It was like, it reminded me of Gustav Fring from uh, Breaking Bad. Oh, uh, Gustavo Fring. Yeah. Just very calm, cool, collected. But when he gets down to business, he's a serious character and I loved right.
0: it. Yeah. It. I like brother Muzon as well. He's a very interesting character. There's a lot to his character that I wish would have been explored more, <laughs> but people do fear him uh yeah. with prop joe he's like i'm not messing with brother moves because stringer tries to get uh somebody in prop joe's camp to take him out he's like i'm not doing that nah. He's like i might as well just go ahead and kill myself now that brother's the fruit brother's from the fruit <laughs> right so yeah mm-hmm. he just has a very unassuming um demeanor yeah you know you would never believe that this guy is a stone-cold killer
1: but he actually is he's a- ruthless absolutely yeah yeah it's it's just one of those characters where i think less is more like the less right. you know about him in the way you're right the way they speak about him just like the boogeyman almost like John Wick or something. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Nobody's going to fuck with Brother Muzon. Just like everybody knew who Omar was. So to see these two, you know, in, in the future go head to head, is just like, yo, this is amazing. Like Clash of the Titans. But yeah, that that's my favorite scene. Scale to one to ten, where would you rate the season?
0: For this season, I would rate the season probably
1: an eight. Eight. Yes, we're on the same page once again. I, would all, I was also going to say eight right below the first season, mm-hmm. uh, but still not uh, the worst season by far. No. We'll get to that. Eventually. (laughs) Yeah, so go ahead and close out the show, Eric. Wait, before we close out the show, I just uh, wanted, well, go ahead and go out and go into the closing and then ask if there's anything before we end. What? The closing. Just be like, all right, well, that's all we have for... All right, well, we thank
0: you so much for joining us today. It was a delight. A wonderful treat. (laughs) All right. Thank you for joining us today. You know, we really had a good time discussing season two of The Wire. I mean, this is one of our this is what we do in our off time. We're never really not talking about some sort of media.
1: We're never talking about, hey, let's talk about the Chiefs game.
0: Right. (laughs) (laughs) We're either talking about music shows, uh, sometimes books, but, you know, mainly movies as well. But The Wire season two is something that we really. Well, the wire period is something that we really enjoy. And we we'll, I don't know if we'll ever get to anything like Game of Thrones. I don't know if we have
1: the we have time. We OK, OK. We're, 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 we're As long as we're doing this, as long as you have the time, I have the time. We, we got the media. We have enough media. We don't need to watch any new media for quite some time. Well, OK, well, I'm looking forward to that because
0: there's a lot to talk about. For looking Game. forward to the Peaky Blinders. We can talk about the
1: Peaky Blinders. Definitely yeah, we to talk about the Peaky Blinders, that might. You hear my horrible Birmingham <laughs> accent. By the time we get to the P.E. Blondes, we'll be perfect. Okay, okay. So All of the British
0: accent. Right, but, you know, we just love doing this, and we love that you all listen in to us. But, you know, let us know. Give us any feedback on what we can do better, what you want to hear about alright bro is there anything that you'd like to add
1: Uh, yeah I just want to thank our listeners you know we got our API since we re-registered for in 2020 and you know to the over 3,000 listeners we had that tuned in from week to week to check us out from the deepest depths of my soul thank you so much it means so much to me to think that you guys actually care about our thoughts ideas and the wonderful people we got doing things in Kansas City so thank you all so much and the fact that I've been able to progress and I'm happy to announce we are in the progress of joining the Pitch Podcast Network, the Pitch KC, a trusted publication here in the Kansas City area that I've been doing some work with, who have featured a few of our interviews such as Shane Phillips from Godly Fine Wine and Maria De Lopez of Pink Street Paranormal. I have also uh, began the process of submitting my first article for the Pitch as a published journalist. So Please be on the lookout for that as well. Shout out to the page doing so much amazing work with the community broadcasting. So we appreciate them. And yeah, all of our supporters on Facebook, uh, Instagram. Uh, we appreciate you guys so much. Please continue to support and share so we can grow the audience and grow our community. So, yeah, that's all I got uh, for my spiel.
0: Thank you again for joining us. I'm Eric Hawthorne. And I'm Jane Banks. And you're listening to Urban Alchemy Podcast. Join us next time. Peace.